This is the Life Church Podcast. Hey, good morning. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? She was right. First service, I don't know. They were more awake, weren't they? What's going on here? All right, you don't like, you don't appreciate that. I get it. I get it. Well, look, hey, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're worshiping with us. And we are so thankful for what the Lord is doing in our midst. We thank you. We thank God for, for his, his saving power and how he's, he's turning lives around and we're experiencing amazing, amazing, cool things in our midst. And it's just, it's just great to get together and to celebrate that. Amen? It's great to worship together. Well, we're finishing off this series called Neighboring today. And, uh, you know, one of the ways, you know, I think about, like, for the last six or seven years of my life, I've begun to to do some like house projects, you know, like some remodeling stuff. I hadn't done it for most of my life. And for a big reason is because my dad never really, I didn't really learn from my dad how to, how to you know, be a handyman kind of person. You know, that's something I just never learned. I learned how to work on a car, but I didn't know how to build stuff, you know? And so, but in the last six or seven years, I ventured out a little bit. You know, how many, how many know that YouTube is your friend? Yeah, you use YouTube, right? I get on YouTube a lot to figure out how to do different things. Now, here's what I have also discovered about YouTube. Not everything on YouTube is right, okay? You, you do, you follow it step by step and it still turns out wrong, you know? And so, and then other things that I've done is I've begun to like watch certain shows that are, that are interesting and, 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 and give me good ideas about remodeling. Like for example, Fixer Upper. How many of you follow Fixer Upper? Raise your hand. Okay, come on, come on, let's raise your hand. No, not as many as I thought. You know, it's like, man, it's like such a, it's like this famous people, you know, I never even knew about them until my kids and my daughter-in-law say, hey, Fixer Upper is awesome. Uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines, they are, you know, down in Waco, Texas, and they, they, they go into these homes and they remodel these, these houses. You would look, man, how, how in the world will this ever look nice? And they get in there and they remodel it and they make it look amazingly beautiful, you know? And one of the things I learned watching Fixer Upper is, you know, I, I don't, like I said, I don't come from a background of construction, so I didn't really realize these things. But one of the things I've learned is this idea of open concept, right? You know what an open, I didn't know what an open concept was until I watched Fixer Upper. And the idea of an open concept is keeping walls to a minimum, you know, having these wide open spaces in a home. And I discovered that that's actually the, you know, the, the preferred uh, design these days. People want these open concepts in their homes. Well, my favorite part in the show of Fixer Upper, and that's probably because I have a, a knack for it. It's, I'm more towards, I'm more bent towards that is when they convince the client, Hey, this is the home that you're going to remodel. And they've, they've signed off on it, you know, and they start walking through the home talking about what walls are going to come down. Right. And my, it's my favorite part because you get to use a tool that, I, that I'm most familiar with, <laughs> sledgehammer. You know, I'm not good at putting up walls, but man, I, could pull, I can bring down some walls. I'm really good at it. In fact, in my bathroom, I did a re- bathroom remodel in my home, and this is kind of maybe too much information, but like if you're sitting on the toilet <laughs> and you look up, 
the ceiling is not quite so, I, I, like I t- gutted everything out and I look up and I can see it does this up and then kind of ba- bends down again, you know. It didn't get quite straight. So I'm not really good at putting things up, but man, I, I tore it down in a heartbeat. I was able to knock that thing down because I think in, in remodeling, it's a lot easier to tear things down, tear walls down than it is to put them up, right? Now that's true in remodeling, but it's not quite so true when it comes to neighboring. I think, in fact, when it comes to neighboring, it's a lot easier to put up walls than it is to tear down walls. And that's really what we've been talking about. It's a lot easier to surround ourselves with people who are like us and put up walls in our neighborhoods or put up walls in our, in our, in our, in, in, you know, in the, whether it's actual neighborhoods or it's a, it's a, a group of people that we identify with, put up these walls so that those that are not like us do not come in. It's a lot easier for us to put up walls than it is to tear them down. Even in church, I think it's, it's easier to put up walls than to tear them down. But yet church is supposed to be this open concept kind of thing, isn't it? There shouldn't be walls in church, and yet it's easy for us to do it. In fact, if you, if you were to travel across churches in America today, not all of them, but the large percentage of them, if you walked in, you would see pretty much people who were just like each other. And walls, whether they know it or not, there are walls that have been put up. So one of my secret plans for this series is to arm you with a sledgehammer, right? I, I, the first, when we kicked the series off, I, I, I wanted you to have some new glasses, right? To see things, to see the world a little bit differently. Today, I want you to have a sledgehammer to tear down some walls. I think maybe that's what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Galatians chapter 3, Verse 28, he says this, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Yes, there are Jews and Gentiles. Yes, there are. Yes, there is male and female. Yes, there are those who are slaves and those who are not. Yes, that is true. But what Paul is trying to tell us here that these are the things that tend to divide us. And when we are in Christ, we are no longer divided. We are one in Christ. And so when we focus on who we are in Christ, all these things that that tend to separate us come crashing down when we understand that of who we are. I think one of the obvious separators in our culture these days is racism. And uh, racism, racism has always existed, but... But it's only been in recent time where in recent history where we begin to experience some really terrible things, racist things happening that have, uh, have separated us, that have created a wall between people. And there's a lot of dialogue and a lot of argumentation and a lot of uh, uh, bantering back and forth around this issue of racism. And it's yet, it's something that separates us. Now, it's true about racism, but I, and it's, it's, like I said, it's in the forefront of our mind, but but there are things that we don't always think about, we don't always talk about. For example, like classism. It's not something we tend to discuss. We just kind of, in many ways, just simply accept it. The definition of classism is this, prejudice against or in favor of people based on their, and typically their socioeconomic standing. In fact, I think that classism for many people can be more of a wall than racism. We might find it more natural to 
relate and be in relationship with somebody of a different color, of a different race, of a different language background than we are with somebody of a different socioeconomic status. And a lot of it just has to do with proximity. Now, there's a, there are a lot of different classes that are represented when we talk about classes. You know, they're not just socioeconomic. I think like the church, for example, classifies oftentimes by denomination, right? So there's denominational identities. People walk in oftentimes when, they, I, I, when a new person t- comes to me. This doesn't happen always. In fact, it happens rarely. But sometimes people will come to me and say, hey, uh, I grew up Lutheran or I grew up Baptist or I grew up you know, Pentecostal or I grew up this or I grew up that and, uh, and kind of want to know where we stand in that classification, that's what I love about Life Church is that right now, sitting in this room right now, there are, there are people from so many different denominational backgrounds. And I love that because that's really what Jesus does. He, he puts away denominationalism. Sometimes in church, we classify people according to spiritual maturity. Like maybe if, if you manage to overcome some type of sin in your life or you've overcome some kind, some kind of a you know, real challenge, spiritual challenge in your life, but you see somebody else who hasn't, it's easy to kind of classify them, to put them in a different category than you, to feel a little bit more superior spiritually because obviously they're still struggling with that. It's easy to do that. But the church is not meant to be a place where we divide ourselves. The church is meant to be an open concept. We're all invited to the cross. We're all invited to the foot of Jesus, every single one of us. The problem is that the culture we live in is very divided by class, and we've accepted it. This is absolutely seen. You can see it. I mean, it's like blatant display of classism when you're in an airport. You've bought a ticket. You have a boarding pass. You're going to get on that airplane, and you're sitting there waiting to get on your airplane. You've got your boarding pass in hand. You're just waiting to get on the airplane. When, the, when you hear them, the mic check, you know, click, 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 you know, and the, the uh, airline attendant comes onto the mic and says, we will now begin boarding flight whatever to uh, Denver, Colorado. And so you get up. You're ready to get on the plane, and then they say, we are now boarding first-class passengers only. First-class passengers only. You may now board the flight. You realize I'm not a first-class passenger, so you sit back down. You hear the mic check again. You know, okay, now it's my turn. You get up there and say, we're now boarding World Alliance members and Platinum members only. World Alliance members and Platinum members only. You're like, I don't know what a World Alliance member is or a Platinum member is, so that must not be me, right? Now you know for sure you're next. And just as you're about to hear them say again, they say, now, members of the military, members of the military, you may now board the flight. You start feeling like you're back in elementary school at the kickball game, you know, and everybody's standing around to get picked, and you're not, you haven't been picked yet. You know, you're like waiting. When is it going to be my turn to play? And then finally, they come back on, and now it's your turn. They say, now... We're now boarding ordinary people. If you haven't accomplished anything in life, you may not get on this plane. Right? Okay, I exaggerated a little bit. But that's how one feels at times, you know? When you're sitting, waiting to get on an airplane, you see all these people, you know, walking. It's like they have, they have airport savvy, you know? They're walking through the airport. They got their little, really cool, little, you know, carry-on roller thing, you know? And they just, they've been, they've done this so many times and they're getting on that plane in a hurry and you're like... I'm like the loser here, right? So you get reminded 
all the time the class that you're in and the class that you're not in, right? Now, that's not unique to our culture. That's true of the culture that Jesus was born into as well. I mean, he was born into a world that was very, very segregated by class. I mean, where you were born, what accent you had, what, what citizenship you had or did not have, you were classified according to that. But when Jesus came to earth, he brought a sledgehammer with him to bring down those walls of class. That's what he did. In fact, Paul tells us a little bit about that in Philippians chapter 2. He says, when Jesus was born, <clears throat> that he was God. But he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He wasn't holding on to it. He, it wasn't his credential he was going to walk around with. He didn't walk into restaurants and say, hey, by the way, I'm God. I need the, the, the nice table, you know. I get the best seats on the airplane. I get first class because I'm God. He didn't do that. It says he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't hold on to it. Instead, what it says, he became nothing. And he became a servant, a servant of all. And then Paul tells us that we should have the same attitude that Jesus had. And how does that work? How do we have the same attitude that Jesus has? He says, by considering others better than yourself. So instead of in the world that we live in, which is the world that says, okay, you're in this class, you're in this class, you're in this class, you're in this class, you guys don't mingle, you, don't, you separate. Instead of having those kind of eyes, looking at the world that way, Paul says we need to have a different kind of eyes. That we look at somebody and we, see, we might see them in a certain class, but then we say, but they are better than me. I consider them better than myself. And that's really what knocks down walls. And that's really what Paul is inviting us all into, right? And what Jesus is as well. So what I want to do this morning is I'm going to conclude this series by revisiting a passage that we, that we talked about. This is like part two of, of the sermon that I preached two weeks ago on you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan. <clears throat> and we're going to look at that passage again in Luke chapter 10. Remember, if you recall, if you were here then, there was this expert in the law, right? A PhD type, an educated man, a man who, who had credentials and who looked at the world a certain way. He looked at the world according to classes, and then there's Jesus, this carpenter become rabbi. And so this expert in the law feels like Jesus is getting a little bit too popular for his britches, right? We're going to knock him down to coach class. He's, he's been sitting in first class. He should not be sitting in first class. He needs to be back in coach. We're going to knock him down a few notches. And so this is what, what he does, right? He, he, he wants to bring Jesus down, verse 25 of Luke 10. It says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, so it's a test, right? Clearly, it's a test. To test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And we discussed that extensively last time, you know, that this is search for all of us for meaning. What's, how do we get good with God? This is really the question. But, but it's a test, right? And because we know it's a test, you know this is a very, very patronizing question that, that this lawyer is, is, is presenting to Jesus. He tries to engage Jesus in a theological debate, now, he should know better than to try to engage Jesus, the Son of God, in a theological debate, right? That's not a smart move, but yet that's what he does, right? Verse 26, Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? So I like this because he kind of like humbly defers to the man. Like, what do you think it is? I mean, you're the, maybe, maybe he's being a little bit sarcastic. He's like, hey, you're the PhD. What do you think? 
Maybe it was a little bit of a sarcastic remark. I don't know. But he basically turns the tables on the man. And he says, hey, what do you think? Now, because this guy is the PhD and because he's asking a question, he already knows the answer too. He's like, he's like chomping at the bit to give the answer. You ever been in a situation like that where you're, you're meeting with somebody and they just, you, they just know. They know, they know, they know, and they just can't wait till you shut up so they can actually say that what's really important. And this is really what's happening here. This guy's like, yeah, you know, I'm ready to give an answer. And so he answers, the man answered, verse 27, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, he uses two different passages in the Old Testament. Jesus responds, right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. So Jesus basically flips the tables on this expert of the law. It almost sounds like a little... He started out kind of patronizing towards Jesus, but it almost sounds like Jesus is patting his student on the head. Good job. Good answer. (laughs) That's what it sounds like, right? And so this guy, he's a little bit beside himself. He feels like he needs to redeem himself. He doesn't want to be shamed by this uneducated simpleton from Galilee, and so this is what he says. The man wanted to justify his actions. It's interesting he says his actions. He's asking a theological question, but he then wants to talk about how he acts, right? The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And what I love is that Jesus doesn't launch into some academic answer. He doesn't say, well, there are, you know, when I say love your neighbor, there's love, and there's like four different, four different words in a Hebrew language for love, and this is really what I'm talking, it's not what he does. He doesn't give us the etymology of, of neighbor, what does neighbor actually mean, that's not what he does. Instead, he tells a story. And I love this, because it's in a story that you capture life. It's in a story that you capture action. It's in a story that you learn how to actually live your life out for Christ. It's not a theological debate. The question of neighbor is not a theological question. It's actually a life question. It's a story question. How are you living your life every single day? In verse 30, it says, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. So Jesus is gonna introduce several classes of people here. They stripped off his clothes, beat him up, left him half dead beside the road. And then he talks about three people who, who walked by, okay, three people who passed by this man. Verse 31, by chance, a priest, there's the first class that he introduces, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Now, this priest probably had some legitimate reasons why he couldn't do it. In fact, if the man had been dead on the side of the road and maybe even injured as, as he was, if the man had been dead and the priest had gotten off of his horse or his donkey or whatever he was riding and touched the man, he would be ceremonially defiled. And that would create some headaches for him. So why would he want to do that? The priest was probably wearing his priestly robes and so... Maybe as he was thinking about the man and feeling sorry for the man, possibly. It doesn't tell us he felt sorry, but maybe he did, giving him the benefit of the doubt. He thought, I can't, I can't dirty up my, my, the tassels on my robe, so I better not do this. The truth is, is that tearing down walls, you can't tear down walls without getting dirty. And so he found reasons why he couldn't stop, and he says he just passed on by. Maybe he thought to himself, there's somebody else who'll come by and help. Verse 32, <clears throat> A temple assistant, or a Levite, as we talked about last time, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. So here's another person who found a reason not to stop, 
This temple assistant is kind of like a person like me. I'm a pastor, right? I pastor this church, and we have other pastors on staff, and we have spiritual roles. We have roles in which we're, you know, we, you know, spiritual roles and religious roles that we carry. And, you know, my life can get kind of busy in the spiritual roles that I carry from time to time. I, I can go pretty much all week long, go, 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 you know, and just doing what I do as a pastor. And so maybe this guy was the same, in the same boat. Maybe he was like me. He was kind of busy. He had a meeting to get to. Maybe he was on his way to a kingdom builders meeting. You know, we do kingdom builders around here. And maybe he was on his way to a kingdom builders meeting or a missions committee meeting. And he's walking by and he sees a man on the side of the road and he says, man, I can't believe this guy's hurt. He's injured. This is terrible. But he doesn't stop. He just kind of makes a mental note to put it on the agenda for his kingdom builders meeting. Hey, you know... Uh, we should do something about Jericho Road. We need a Jericho Road outreach program. That's what we need. So the next time I get together with my missions committee, we're going to have a Jericho Road outreach program. We'll call it JROP. J-R-O, yeah, you know what I'm saying, right? That's what we're going to do. A Jericho Road outreach program, because after all, people are just getting hurt on that road. But he just passes by. Doesn't do anything. You ever watch the show, What Would You Do? John Quinones, it's a show that comes on TV, it's, you've seen it probably, it's on ABC. It's where, uh, it's where these, uh, they create these socially awkward or challenged situations, and then there's these unwitting participants, and they kind of are part of it, you know, and like maybe there's a, a mom yelling at some kids, and there's the table next to them like, okay, what do I do about this mom yelling at their kids, or something like that, you know, various different things. People are being prejudiced against or whatever, and then, then they, it poses this question, what would you do, right? What would you do? And that's sort of what happens to this temple assistant. Like, I think that as a temple assistant, he probably, or Levi, he probably felt compassion for the man, but he's wondering, what should I do? What would I do in this situation? I myself was faced with a what would you do kind of situation a few weeks ago. You know, I kicked off this series, Neighboring, talking about this very same passage, The Good, the good Samaritan. And, uh, you know, it, it was a good series. I mean, it's a good message, you know, I felt like, and everything's fine. I think you got the point of what, that we all need to open our eyes and be good Samaritans. Um, but that very afternoon, I was going to be put to the test. I was like on a, it was like a what would you do kind of moment for me. How many, many of you know that I, I, I just bought a new truck. It's not brand new, but it's fairly new. It's nice, leather seats, navigation, you know, no scratches. Like all my other vehicles always had scratches. This one has no scratches. Pristine carpet. It's nice. I like it. And, uh, and so I'm, after the service, you know, last su- uh, two Sundays ago after the service, I'm, you know, preaching on Good Samaritan. I go home. I'm with my grandkids in our basement. I have one of my grandkids on my chest when down comes, down, the, down into my basement comes my neighbor, Kevin. And Kevin comes all the way down and he says, hey, Rich, man, I know you got a new truck. Um, and he actually asked me, like, how new is it? Is it like brand new or is it kind of, and I'm like, well, it's like, it's, in my mind, I'm thinking, it's like really new for me, you know, that's what I was thinking. But, uh, but then he says, you know, I got some farm equipment to pick up and wondering if you can, if I can borrow your truck. And I, I, I'm honestly, I thought my wife is putting, putting him up to this. She told him to come down and ask to borrow my truck, my brand new truck. I've only had it one week to borrow my brand new truck. I'm like, where's John Quinones? He's somewhere in here, ABC. He's somewhere around here because I know I'm on camera and it's a what would you do moment. And then Kevin's like, no, no, seriously. I, I, I was at an auction. I just bought some old farm equipment and I'd like to be able to bring it home and I just don't have a truck. 
And so I pull out my keys. <laughs> gave him my keys to the truck. And, uh, and he did, and he brought it back safe. I, I have to admit, shame, shamefully admit, that after he brought it back, later when he was gone, I walked outside and walked around to make sure there was no scratches on it. <laughs> I think that sometimes it's easier to put up walls, right? I think in that situation, it would have been easy to say something like, hey, sorry, Kevin, you know, I really don't lend out my stuff. I'm, I, uh, you know, I could help you. I can, I can drive it myself. I can, I can, it's easier to do that as opposed to tearing down the wall. I think some of the walls that separate us that need to be torn down are walls of busyness. Walls of busyness. It's just not convenient. There's too many things going on. I just can't possibly, I can't make the time to, to pull down this wall. And yet we can find, you spend countless hours stalking your friends on social media. You spend countless hours, you know, listening to the news feed and staying up to date on what's going on in the world on your device. We have mind-numbing ways of basically wasting our life away, but when it comes to this wall, we just don't have time. We're just too busy. Another wall is a wall of self-righteousness, right? We look at people in a, in a different class. And we say, you know, they shouldn't have been walking down that road to Jericho. That, it, it's their fault. It's their fault. They, they know the dangers of the Jericho road. Why were they on that road? Maybe they were on that road at night. Why were they doing that? It's their fault. They deserve what they get. It's a wall of self-righteousness. What I'm glad is that Jesus, when he walked down that road and he saw me on the side of the road, he didn't look at me and say, well, he made all the wrong choices. I'm sorry, I'm not going to help him. He didn't do that. Instead, he walked across the street and he bandaged my wounds and he healed me. <clears throat> Finally, in verse 33, it says, this, then a despised Samaritan came along and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, you know. I mean, if you're looking for different classes of people, this would have been the least likely person to help this Jewish man who was injured on the side of the road. The least likely, likely one, right? The Jews hated them. They didn't even call them Samaritans. They called them dogs. That's the language that they would use. They're dogs. Samaritan dogs. They hated these people. He says, a spice Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man... He felt compassion for him. He felt compassion for him. He sees him. He feels compassion for him. And because he is the least likely person to help the man, that's what makes this story so rich and so powerful and so relevant for us. It's breaking down the classes that exist, breaking down the walls that we have basically accepted as just normal. It's breaking those down. Um, I don't know if you saw this or not. I have a picture this is a few years back. This is in Columbia, South Carolina. I don't know if you see this, but this man here with the black t-shirt on, he's got this, uh, I don't know, it's, it's some organization, and he's part of the, he's a white supremacist who's been on a rally, a KKK rally that's going on in South Carolina in front of the courthouse. And he's older, so he becomes a little bit, um, you know, overwhelmed with, uh, with the heat, and he's, he's, uh, he's getting sick, he's not feeling well, and so you have this officer, Leroy Smith, who basically walks across, grabs a man, holds him by the arm, helps him back up, gets him into some shade, 
and offers him some water to drink. Um, it's not likely, right, that this would happen, it seems like. Now, you could stand on that courthouse, on those courthouse steps, pull out a big bullhorn and start screaming at the top of your lungs, you bunch of white supremacists, what's wrong with you? And you can even preach a sermon on loving your neighbor. You could do that, standing on that. But nothing preaches that message stronger than this picture right here. Where a black officer crosses a a wall, a barrier. I mean, he could have easily said, you know what, I'm I'm just going to pretend like I don't see the guy. I mean, after all, he's rallying against me. So I'm just going to pretend like I don't see the guy. He could have said, he, he could have said, hey, 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 uh, bud, you know, some fellow officer, hey, could you just take care of that guy? I'm not going to do it. But Leroy Smith knocks down a wall. He's the least likely person to do it. And because he's the least likely person to do it, he preaches the loudest sermon you can possibly listen to and the best sermon you can possibly hear. So Jesus tells this story where one class helps another, and you would have never expected it. It's an interesting twist in the story. You would have expected some other response. You would have expected some, the audience is listening to him, and they think, yeah, th- this is going a different direction than I thought it would go. That's the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a church that pulls down walls, that decides that classism is not... It's not good for the kingdom of God, and we're not going to fault play that game, even though the world around us does all the time, right? Next time you fly, I fly out on Wednesday to go see my daughter in Colorado Springs, and I promise you, I will experience the effects of classism in that airport. The world says that's normal, but the church says those walls need to come down. So as a church, what, what do we do? How do we respond to this? Well, I think it starts by asking this, que- this question much more intentionally. What would it be like? To just start asking that question. What would it be like? What would it be like to be that, put ourselves in a position of that other person, right? That person who's walled off, that person who's separated from us and ask ourselves a question. What would it be like to be them? What would it be like to grow up where they grew up? What would it be like to, to historically be prejudiced against because of your skin color or because of your race or because of your language? What would it be like to be dismissed because of an intellectual disability? I mean, there's a lot of what would it be like that you can ask. You see, when you stop and ask this question, compassion begins to surface. And what's really cool is if you look at the, at the Gospels and you see the stories of Jesus, one of the primary emotions that you experience from Jesus is the emotion of compassion. He had compassion for a woman caught in adultery. He had compassion for another woman at the well who had five husbands and she was now living with somebody else. He had compassion for this Roman centurion whose, whose child was dying. Jesus always had compassion. In many ways, he's had compassion because the wall had come down. He saw people differently than how the rest of the world sees people. Well, you know the rest of the story. The Samaritan uh, takes care of the man. He puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn. He tells the innkeeper, hey, take care of the guy. And whatever you accrue in, you know, in, in, in costs and expenses, I'll pay it when I get back. So he, he, he just goes out of his way. And what makes it so powerful is that it's the least likely person that would do that. I don't know what comes of the expert when Jesus finally finishes the parable and 
the experts ask the question, he's been put in his place. I don't know if he basically changes his mind about who is his neighbor. I don't know if he decides to start tearing down some walls. I don't know, but honestly, if you read the gospels, you can pretty much interpret that he did none of that. It's doubtful that he actually even listened to what Jesus had to say, but rather walked away and decided, I'm gonna figure out another way to trap him. And like what we see here in that parable, it often happens in real life. But you hear some compelling truth that demands its action. You're here and you're like, yeah, Pastor Rich, you're so right. You're, I agree with you, you're right, you're right. And then we just shrug our shoulders and we walk away with indifference. We make no decision to change. We, f- we figure that it's just, it's just too much work to tear down that wall. It's just too much. You're right, you're right. I am, theologically, I agree with you, yes. And you're right, absolutely you're right about how you know, there's this classism that exists in my, in my own neighborhoods, in my own world, and I don't like it, but you're right, Rich, but what can we possibly, do you really expect me to pull out a sledgehammer and start knocking down some walls? And if we're gonna be the church that Christ has called us to be, that's exactly what we need to start doing. Maybe not literally. <laughs> don't go to your office tomorrow and start knocking down walls, okay? You might get in trouble. But start figuring out a way Start figuring out a way to ask that question, what would it be like to be in their shoes? And I promise you, when you start asking that question, sincerely asking that question, compassion will begin to surface. And you'll begin to see their story. And we'll no longer, you'll take the question of who is my neighbor out of a theological debate and you'll put it into a new kind of question, a new kind of conversation is, what can I do to be more neighborly? And that's really the invitation of Christ to us. Let's all stand. I guess the bottom line question is, why should I care, right? Why why should I care about people that are just different than me or in a different class than I am? Why should I care? And the answer is very simple. Because there was a day, one day in your life, when you were that man on the side of the road. And Jesus cared for you. He went to extremes to tear down walls so that you can have and experience the life that you now experience. And he's inviting all of us in that same journey. That's why Paul says, have the same mind that Christ has, have the same attitude that Christ has. Amen? Father, we wanna thank you, God, for your goodness, your grace, your loving kindness. Father, we acknowledge that we have been accepted by you. God, we have been invited by you into a dynamic, loving relationship with you, our Heavenly Father. There are people in this room, Father, that were lost and were addicted and broken and hurting. And Jesus, you filled that gap. God, you reached across the road. You bandaged their wounds. You healed them up. You've given them a purpose to live. And now today, Father, you're inviting us all to be an army that tears down the walls of classism an army that says, what would it be like to be in their shoes? An army that's filled with compassion and love for their neighbor. So Father, make us that church, we pray in Jesus' name.
This is the Life Church Podcast. 